Listening to the Taming Hinges podcast, conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances podcast. As always, my name is Phil. Yes, I'm still working on a new opening. And I have another episode for you. This episode, again, is brought to you by the lovely deck of tarot cards I have uh, in my my ever ongoing adventure into self-awareness, mental health, and this new thing called spirituality. I have decided to continue to consult the cards to come up with my my topics for the discussion. Uh, and today's topic, I'm going to jump right into, and we'll get into the cards as well, is entitled uh, Tranquility. And this one, uh, this one's a bit of an interesting one, if I have to say so. Um, tranquility is, well, I mean, like many things in the realm of mysticism and the realm of even religious beliefs and things that are involved with Buddhism or just philosophies in general, quite misunderstood in my general opinion. Um, it's also coming to light, you know, in looking at this topic, it's misunderstood because one, no one's teaching it. And if they are, they probably have no idea what they're teaching in regards to someone else. A lot of these things are so very personal that it's hard to teach to someone else. And in fact, I found that um, just looking back at, martial arts training is one thing that keyed me into this, the way people teach something. And I'll get into that a little later. Um, but often when we talk about these giant subjects, these almost insurmountable ideas that we must come to grips with, or at least start to learn about when it comes to self-awareness, mental health, spirituality, learning about ourselves, really, they're so intrinsic, intrinsically, um, intrinsically involved in depression or, you know, the way we see the world, that it's kind of hard to teach someone else. Just like I say, you can't understand someone else's depression. It's almost the same that you can't teach people these things. So instead you must make them aware of them. So I think that's what I'm really kind of seeing uh, specifically what the cards are kind of telling me on this one is to make people aware of these things. It's not my job to teach you so much. It is to make you aware of something. And in fact, just like I do with my practice of body work and massage, I'm not trying to heal someone. Even in my Qigong practice, when I, when I teach someone Qigong or I do Qigong healing, I'm not trying to heal someone. I'm reminding their body to heal them. I'm reminding them to heal themselves. And just like when I talk about the separation of the three health bodies that make up self, there's also that separation in the interactions in which we have in a, I'm not going to say medical because I'm not a medical practitioner, um, in a healing, you know, get out the carducious, 
you know, take the hippocampus oath, those types of situations, the old ancient methods of healing where we're trying to help someone, but the only way to do that is to interact inside of the health bodies in a methodology in which we're just, we're just a guiding force. We're just a, a reminder, a kind of a knocking on the door saying, Hey, time to get up. It's time to heal yourself. So that's where I'm coming from when I'm talking about tranquility. And before I get into the cards, we're going to go straight into the definition from our lovely website, Merriam Webster's Dictionary. Tranquility is the, the quality or state of being tranquil. So we'll jump into the definition of tranquil. And the, the definition of tranquil is free from agitation of mind or spirit, free from disturbance or turmoil. And the second definition is unvarying in aspect. Um, this is this is the realm of having a quiet, calm mind. And those things are nearly impossible in today's society. Yet they're only impossible because of the definition and the the contextual nature in which we try to teach them. Um, I'll get into some anecdotal stories to describe that. But first, I want to just jump through the cards here to kind of, you know, for those who are interested in that idea and how I got to this place. The first uh, card I drew was the Ace of Swords. And the Ace of Swords is uh, the sword suit has to do with um, our ideas, our... uh, our actions, our, our plans. Um, and the Ace of Swords is a representation of, of being aware of, of truth, of this is, you know, what is our true nature, so to speak? What is our truth? Um, and the warning goes along with this is, are you being truthful in your actions? Um, are you, is there, is there a disturbance between your action or your beliefs and those types of structures and your actions. Are they separate? Are they, are you actually acting in accordance to what you believe? That's the warning that goes along with the Ace of Swords. And the Ace of Swords is represented by this individual who's got their eyes closed and the swords drawn up between their, their, uh, their brow. And, you know, there's these floating clouds and on the sword itself, the sword's very ornate. There's an ornate crown and there's these, um, these, fern-like plants. Uh, it's a very peaceful idea. Um, some on the one hand side, there is the olive branch, you know, as like peace, you know, tranquility, those types of things. Then the second card I drew, oddly enough, was also from the swords uh, suit and it was the knight of swords. And the knight of swords is a representation of an individual who is upholding their own truth, but they might be blind to the idea in, in this uh, card, the in typical nature, the knight of swords has their eyes closed, but they're, they're an uprighteous, you know, they're a righteous knight. They use their words and, you know, they're very inside of their own truth so much so that they might be blind to someone else's truth and that what they believe in may not fit someone else's, but they're, fit someone else, but they're trying to force it upon them. Uh, and then from there I drew the seven of wands and the seven of wands is, it's about ourselves. It's really to be inflective. It's, it's to be inward looking. It's about almost celebrating our own achievements and to, to be proud of ourselves, to look into. Um, but it's a defense of that idea. So the seven of wands is like a defensive idea. It's, it's to, to defend that which is worth protecting and what is worth protecting in this general idea is, is our beliefs, our truths, our, our reality, the, you know, the things that we should be standing up for, um, freedom, those types of ideas, but specifically who we are. It's really 
the reflection of that, but it's it's to be in the defense of that. That's what the Seven of Wands is kind of. It's it's noting, and it, it, it's a, a courageous action to do so. It's courageous to to stand up for something that is uniquely who you are, your depression, and not back down to the world around us, to society's norms. Um, not that those are you know oppressive all the time, but sometimes we go along with the flow or we, we get mixed up in the crowd and, and we don't all necessarily believe in that. This is how evils persist. This is how, you know, the old saying where evil persists because there was no one willing to stand up to it. Um, the, the warning here though, is to defend without picking a fight. Like that's the warning, you know, to be in defense of these great, amazing belief structures and ideas without going to war over them without fighting over them to have the understanding that no, 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 I, this is what I believe in. This is what I, I hold true, but it's okay. If you hold up something different, just stop trying to force your opinion on me. That's, you know, the ace of night. That's the warning of these three cards is yes, truths and beliefs and all these things are, are amazing things and they're important things, but we shouldn't be forcing them on each other. We should just be, excuse me. Uh, they sh we should be upholding our own. We should be our own, Defenders in that way. From there, I drew um, the Four of Wands. So this was an interesting idea because we're in we're in two specific suits, and the I talked about the the suit of swords. The suit of wands has to do with our drives and our wills, like our passions, um, and the the Four of Wands has to do with. A celebratory function. It's um, parties and celebration, group community ideas, celebrating our achievements. But the warning there is not to celebrate too soon, but it's to take part in that. So it's it's this whole representation here is to take part in the idea of celebrating our truths and being in our so and truth and action are our ideas, our opinions, the way we believe in our lives to make that also our actions. In the, the Buddhist teachings, we have what's known as the Eightfold Path. And I might get into that at another time, but the Eightfold Path has a lot to do with, you know, write this, write that. So they have right speech. And another thing they have is right action. And right actions have to do with making sure your actions line up with what you believe in. And part of that is to have these belief structures. So there, it's more of a structured idea in the Eightfold Path because it is part of Buddhism and in that philosophy. You also see this in Taoism and Hinduism. Uh, a little bit in Jainism talks about it. But it's it's there's this idea of right action. So I had this kind of swimming around and I was like, you know what? I can do a lot with this. There could be wisdom. There could be all of these different topics that could go into this. So I picked one last card, uh, just as a kind of a clarification, and this is really where I hit on the tranquility idea. The last card I picked was the the Hierophant, and the Hierophant typically recommend uh, represents the the fool going and learning about belief structures and religion, but more so than that, it's really learning about really learning about internal struggle in some ways. It's really learning about. Um, the way to deal with walk your talk, you know, how to, how to represent that. Whereas the two previous cards in the uh, major arcana are the, uh, the Empress and the emperor. And they talk about, you know, home and social life and social order, you know, those types of things. The Hierophant is talking about, you know, 
formal training and education, all of these things we pick up along the way that makes up our belief structures. If you go all the way back to the beginning of this podcast, when I was talking about, you know, the first two episodes are education and belief. This is the realm of the Hierophant. Things that we've experienced, education structures, religious structures, philosophical structures, our relationships, the languages we're using, and how all these things start to build our reality. The Hierophant is talking about those specific value systems. Um, it's also the the inflection here. So this is where we change the seven of um, the seven of wands from a a defense of an idea to a defense of ourselves to look inward at ourselves and to defend those ideas. And the warning here is: Are you living your truth? And I talked about this a little bit in the truth episode back in episode thirteen. But from a spiritual standpoint. I believe all of these things are describing tranquility because part of the eightfold path and a part of many philosophical understandings and structures, and even those inside of religions are talking about this peace of mind, right? And a lot of the time we hear fancy words thrown out there like um, enlightenment or even, you know, the idea of tranquility. And again, they get mixed up. They're not, they're not, taught correctly because they can't really be taught correctly. If we look at something like Buddhism and, or I know I bring up Buddhism a lot. It's something I know a bit about, but if we just look at what's known as a canonical writing, and I know I've mentioned that before, but we'll overview just real quick. A canonical writing is something that's in Canon and Canon is a coherent, which is a synonym um, of tranquility and, and those things to be incoherence, uh, quality or state of being cohered, uh, which is a logical or aesthetically ordered or integrated idea. So you can think of a canon like the books of the Bible. Those are canonical writings. They're in canon. Um, they're typically anecdotal by definition, but they are ordered sequently for a reason. And they're always there to do what a parable does or, or a in a, um, an analogy or these are what canonical writings do. They're, they're there to written as stories to make you think about something in a, in a specific order or way. And with Buddhism, it's a fantastic experience to go through the canonical writings. There's the greater canon and the lesser canon, the Mahayana and the Vishnahana. Um, but just the canonical writings in and of themselves have been misstrewn, if you will, uh, even in specifically in the Abrahamic religions about how we go through reading the Bible, reading the Torah, reading the Quran. Um, in Jainism, they use some of the Buddhist canonical writings. In um, Hinduism, they're there as well. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a fantastic canonical writing. It, the, the If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's on the website. Um, on the archive, tamingindrus.com slash archive. There's a link to get a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. You don't have to go through there. You can, you know, you don't have to use my Amazon links or anything like that. You just go find a copy, get it on Kindle. I think there's like free, I think I have a free Kindle version actually linked on the archive. So you can go that route if you want. But uh, the Bhagavad Gita is, I'm going to ruin this, unfortunately, sorry. Just a little bit, a little bit of a spoiler here. Still go read it. The Bhagavad Gita is a story about a prince talking to what he perceives to be um, someone lower than him. And I'm trying not to say too much because I don't want to give it away too much. But he's speaking to someone who's just lower in station to him, him and then him. 
but he's learning things from them and he's, he's trying to get an understanding of what's going on here. And he's constantly being challenged by this individual um, to open his mind more, to, to walk his talk, to have that idea. And it turns out in the end that this individual is a very powerful, important person. I'm not going to spoil who or what, but um, they have no idea the entire time. And then eventually they figure it out and they find out that it happens to be this individual. And so that's a, one of the canonical writings and it's to make us sit there and think about how do I want to live my life? What actions should I be taking to represent who I am? So we're in those, the what, the when, you know, the how. Then we can add in some of the why questions. And, and the canonical writings tend to get into those deeper why questions. But later on, this is partly of how I started to take out the why questions from things when I talked about that in the beginning of this um, podcast. That And this is how I specifically broke down um, how why questions are part of spirituality. And this idea of tranquility is really getting into that specific item. And as you know, I like to take the contextual nature out of things. So we're taking the context of religions out. We're taking the context of belief structures out. We're even taking the context of philosophical natures out, even though I like to be very philosophical about how I talk about things. And in some cases, it's almost impossible to remove that contextual nature. I'm attempting to here. So when we talk about tranquility, we end up talking about coherence and you know, the quality or state of being cohered. We also talk about harmony. And this is a really important topic because a lot of people use these words outside of their context to give context to something else. Harmony is really talking about notes and chords and musical structures, but we can use it to talk about things like internal calm, to have harmony. Internal calm is another idea of tranquility. But, um, there's also, at the very end definition here of harmony, um, there's a definition, and it's an interweaving of different accounts into a single narrative, canonical writings, a systematic arrangement of parallel literary passages, canonical writings. Uh, the archaic version of, of harmony is just a tuneful sound, it's a melody. But Going back to, those are synonyms of tranquility. Going back to tranquility itself, to be tranquil, free from agitation of mind or spirit, free from disturbance or turmoil. How do we achieve that? Well, that's something we can teach people. That's something that we can actually look at. Telling someone to be tranquil and to, to have tranquility, to have harmony, to have peace of mind, and just, you know, to meditate on that. That's an old school way of hard my French as usual, fucking with people. That's really what that's about. The whole idea of teaching Buddhism was to mess with people in some way, really mess with how their mind organizes things, really challenge them. The idea of playing the devil's advocate, that was really one of the roles of a higher level teacher. Um, even in the Shaolin methods with like the Arhats, you know, this is how the Bodhidharma taught, you know, to really just mess with people, pay devil's advocate when necessary and make people open their minds, but open their minds by opening themselves to themselves. And that's the idea of tranquility. Tranquility has nothing to do with someone else's belief structures other than your own. Tranquility can never be attained by looking at someone else's methods. That's why it's almost impossible to teach because the only way to teach it is to look at how to be free from agitation of mind or spirit. 
What does that really mean? It's kind of what the cards are telling us here. The Ace of Swords. What's your truth? What's it look like? What do you really believe in? You got to, you know, got to look at those things. The Knight of Swords. Not listening to other people trying to apply their truths to you. And also, vice versa, not trying to apply what you believe to be true on someone else just because you believe it to be true. It's okay for it just to be true for you. And then the seven of, of wands to defend that idea, to defend these actions, to be in right action of that idea. And then four of wands to celebrate it, to not pre-celebrate though, not to, you know, to be boastful and those things, just to have a clean, clear, crisp celebration of being truthful and honest with yourself. Um, and that's your own achievements. That's when I talked about in the effort uh, episode. If you if you didn't listen to episode 41, please go back because I think effort is one of the most important things we should celebrate as a society instead of celebrating achievements to celebrate the effort that goes into them, but specifically for ourselves. And then lastly here, the Hierophant. And to look at what it means to be you for yourself so that there is a balance, there is a harmony, there is a coherence, your own canonical story. So here's a, a here's something I'm going to throw out that I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever thrown this out before. I, I might be the first on this one. Probably not. I'm not the first on most things, but I'd like you to, for a second, suspend disbelief, suspend all religious connotations Keeping in mind that you need to have your own truth and have with inside of your own actions. So if you are a religious person, I have no problem with you. There's no, there's no anger here, but to get outside of the religious overview structure to be your own religion for a second, just as I talk about how the self, the physical form is ruled by the mental health body and how we are gods over side of our, we are an omnipotent presence over our, our physical forms. Your mind says cheeseburger, your mind says go run a mile and your body has to respond to that. It might fight back here or there and tell it, Hey, Hey, this isn't good for me or no, I can't accomplish this just yet. But we can override that if we're the body or if we're the mind, we can tell the body to shut up, just do it anyway. So in that regard, you're an omnipotent presence over your own physical form that comes from the mind. Now there's also another spiritual form inside of that, that the other health body, but for a second, we're going to, we're going to suspend disbelief and we're going to become our own religion, but not just the religious aspect. Again, we're going to remove the connotation. So I just want to get you in that frame of mind and then pull back a little bit to the idea of we're our own philosophy. We are our own way of doing things. We're our own, what's known as Tao. T-A-O, the Tao, the way of, the path, the experience, um, the Tao Te Ching, the, 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 the way of effort, the way of experience, the way of understanding. So if we are, in that regard, our, our, our own omnipotent presence over our physical forms, and thus we are gods to our body, the god of our body is our mind, what would your canonical writing look like? I'm going to put it a different way. What would your Bible look like? What would your Torah look like? What would your Quran look like? What would your Mahayana look like? What would your Vishnahana look like? What would your Bhagavad Gita talk about if you were the other person the prince was talking to? It, what would your, I'm lacking, I'm lacking more of those canonical writings to throw out right now, but what would your Bible look like? 
what would the the canonical writings of people's anecdotal experiences to be you look like? What would your memoirs look like? As far as like, if we look at Marcus Aurelius's meditations, how that has now been used to create this, this weird understanding of stoicism from someone, yes, who was very stoic, but wrote a, a journal, a personal journal that they hoped would never be found and never be read. Um, I think I've talked about it before, but we use Marcus Aurelius's meditations as a almost like a golden child for like a, like a golden path to like, this is stoicism. In reality, if we looked at the person, the human being, um, and this is why celebrities don't exactly excite me so much because I look at them as human first. And sometimes I have a great deal of compassion for a celebrity because they don't get to experience things in the same regards. And yes, there's money and fortune and fame and those things are all great, they are pigeonholed into certain experiences that may be detrimental to them mentally all the time. Um, but if you look at this idea of, so like Marcus Aurelius's meditations, that was, we've turned that into his Bible, the Bible of stoicism, if you will. And if we look at just who he was, he was a human, right? He was just a human being. Um, he was a, a great warrior King. Uh, he had, tranquility of mind. He had, you know, free from agitation of mind or spirit in most cases, but we can see a lot of turmoil that we can see a lot of that. Was he free from disturbance and turmoil? Not all the time. He has phases of tranquility. A lot of those were from post, um, this weird in-between period between his very, very harsh upbringing to the period where he became King. He had some tranquility periods, but there weren't all the time. They didn't exist without, you know, some sort of troubled situation. Um, inside of that idea, we have Marcus Aurelius as a human. And he writes these things that we now call his meditations, but they're really just his memoirs, really just his, his personal journal, his diary. And he had a very distinct way of saying like, I hope no one gets a hold of these. He did it kind of cryptically, um, but a lot of it was him trying to come to grips with his father's harshness yet caring, his mother's disdain for certain things, but also her her love that you know she showed him, his interactions with his family, uh, his, his interactions with how he was trying to be a king of a great civilization, a great city without having any friends at the highest level, he was purely alone and so much alone that he had to master his depression. He had to master his feelings and emotions because he couldn't show them outwardly. Had he done so, he would have been weak and would have been overthrown immediately. And his enemies were ever present and ever growing and they wanted him dead. This is like, um, you know, there's a direct correlation to what Caesar went through and what Marcus Aurelius went through. And he draws that line in some cases and you can see it, but also how he, how he treated it, you know, whereas Caesar was very open with it. And then Caesar eventually kind of broke to it. He gave his son uh, a representation of, he was trying to will his son into being the next Roman emperor where that had never been done before. There was no line of secession in the Roman empire that was not allowed. Um, 
essentially there was never never any precedence for that and yet he was trying to do that because he was so attached to his name to his his historical record whereas marcus aurelius was so attached to never being weak never showing any weakness never being able to be brought down to his knees and to do that he had to be master of his own self because again if he would have showed that outwardly he was dead tomorrow you know, the assassins would have came and they would have said, he was weak. We had to get rid of him. So he had to master himself. And that's where stoicism comes from. It has nothing to do with not being emotional, not having, you know, only using logic and reason, not having any feelings. It's all about mastering those things. And it comes from a canonical writing of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which are his Bible. So I challenge you to kind of have this, idea, like, even if you just do it like in a basic sense, what is your Bible. What is your understanding of the way in which they would write your history or, or a thousand years from now, they read your diary. What would they get from it? What belief structures, what personal matters, what, what things matter to you? And did you represent those in your actions? Cause that's what tranquility really means to be tranquil of mind is to be free from agitation of mind or spirit. To, so to, that's to be tranquil as a whole, but also to be tranquil of mind is to be free from disturbance or turmoil. And we find that in what's known, we call the consciousness. You know, do you have a conscious, are you a conscious person? That's kind of a misrepresentation, right? There's subconscious, conscious. We have these, you know, new clinical ideas, definitions, understandings, but do we have a do we have a representation of them no we're still kind of trying to figure that out but beyond that we have we have right action right mind right speech right you know we have the eightfold path idea we have the methods in which the um i'm lacking on the term i'm looking for here Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the, the Son, the um, the Prophet. Are you an action of the Prophet? You know, if we look at the Abrahamic religions, you know, are you acting in the way of Jesus? Are you acting in the way of Muhammad? Are you acting, you know, are you in the acting in the holding, upholding the Ten Commandments of Noah? Uh, these are the method. You know, when we talk about sins and we talk about virtues. All of these historical ideas come from single sources. So what would yours look like? That's what I'm talking about here. What would your 10 commandments, what would your five commandments, what would your three commandments with? If you had three things you could tell someone a thousand years from now, this is how you should represent yourself and live your life, but not even them. Like how did you, that would be your canonical writing. And it could be stories. You could pick three specific stories out of your life and how you handled them that make up the way in which you act. And that would be your canonical writing. What would those be? And why would you write them that way? So that's the spiritual side of the whole idea. Is why would you write them that way? And I've shared the story of the uh, canonical writing of the, it's a Buddhist um, story from the canons, of the individual running away from the wolves and seeing this beautiful flower on the cliffside as they jump off the cliff. There's all of these different ways and methodologies. So if we look at, Let's just take the Bible because a lot of people are pretty familiar with it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, 
the four books of the New Testament, the four first books of the New Testament. Those are the canonical stories of the Savior, of the prophet, Jesus, and how they're represented through the eyes of these four individuals. That's one way to tell the story. So if you got four of your friends together to tell stories about who you were as a person and how you acted, we typically do this at funerals. They're known as eulogies. Um, those would be the canonical representation of how that would, how it's how the Bible set up. Now, this is kind of true in almost every form of human history. We do verbal canonical writings. I've talked a lot about the major religions. Let's talk about some of the minor religions for a second. The pagans specifically people near and dear to my heart. Um, and I, I, pagans in the broad sense of polytheistic, uh, polytheistic understandings of the world. We have the North Pantheon, the North Pantheon, you know, Odin, Freya, Thor, um, you go down the list. Each of their stories, their representations are a specific representation of their canonical writing, how they act, how they functioned. And we have to have the understanding that in the, specifically in the North Pantheon, the Norse Pantheon, they were living gods to these people. They were living versions of the gods on this planet. They walked among the gods walked among us was the understanding of the pagans. Even the Wodes had a very strong idea of the gods. The spirits walked among us. The Wodes are the original um, Scottish Highland individuals who also mixed with the North Germanic tribes. And they had these individuals known as the Wodes um, from that lineage. Before that, we get what's known as the Druidic orders. And from the Druidic orders, we can move into the Celtic mystery uh, schools who also had their own version of the Druidic orders. So it's the Scotland, Ireland um, matchup. And specifically the worship of the Arbits or the, um, uh, the arboreal nature, the trees, uh, the, the tree spirits, if you will, but more plant. So structures, and this comes down to a, a full understanding of medicine, uh, in the, in the Wode community, in the Celtic communities, in the, uh, anyone above Hadrian's walls communities, the, the original pagan situations, there was a, a very strong understanding of, medicinal factors so they worshiped those ideas and through their canonical expression of all these stories we see them passing on knowledge i almost entitled this again i almost titled this uh, episode wisdom because that's kind of what we're talking about here is a little bit is wisdom but a specific type of wisdom a wisdom that is so intrinsically what you believe in that it becomes your own story your own faith the way in which you conduct yourself now in all of these representations, again, we have knowledge being passed on different canonical stories about, and they might just include one snippet about leaves of three, let it be. Remember, you know, that from a kid, leaves of three, let it be. That's poison ivy. Stay away from that. Don't touch that. That's bad. Um, and through that, we also have other representations. Someone like Loki, 
um, or what we, what's known as trickster gods or trickster individuals. Uh, in the Eastern practices, we have what's known as the kitsune, the fox spirits, and how the fox spirits can you know lead us astray. But there are specific omnipotent fox spirits like the nine-tailed fox who are capable of absolute trickery, but also may step in and save you. You know, so there's kind of a a representation there. But these individuals are leading their reality, their fought, their their hierophant nature, if you will. So even though they're tricksters, that's what they are. They don't necessarily lie about being a trickster. They just are a trickster. So they do trickster actions. But we warn about that because it's we warn about acting differently than what we usually are, who we really are to be. You don't want to be of the Loki mind. You don't want to be a trickster to yourself. These stories were to, you know, not so much scare children, but to, to warn individuals about not representing who they really were and their belief structures. Now, yes, there is always the ability to take that too far. And this is where we get into religious zealotry. This is where we get into the history of, you know, Christianity taking over the Roman Empire and then the Roman Empire marching the legions under the the Golden Eagle up through the Hadrian's Wall and destroying the pagan communities because they believe something differently, even though they believe some of the same things. Um, and then, you know, we can look at the Roman pantheon. We can look at the Greek pantheon. In the Greek pantheon, we have a very interesting representation of this idea of tranquility to be free from disturbance or turmoil in the mind. This was the action of praying to one's God. You know, if you were um, a farmer, you would pray to the God of harvest. If you were a tavern keeper, you might pray to uh, the Bacchanalia, to, to Bacchus, to be, you know, people to be, to be into the Bacchanalia, to be into this, this, you know, drink and merriment and, you know, those types of things. Um, if you were a merchant, you would pray to the merchant gods. So they all had these specific things. And inside of them, they had these stories of how to be a good merchant. You would follow the stories of the merchant gods, how to be a wise individual. You would follow the story of Odin, how Odin gave up an eye for all of the world's history, how there is no just take, you must give to receive. Um, and then also the story of how uh, Odin came to the the brothers Hugin and Mugen, his two his two crow uh, sorry ravens, um, how th- you know they were part of his story of how he gained wisdom, and then how he weighed it and could all see this seeing things all the time, um, even just you know the stories of Heracles. Uh, the or any of the stories of uh, the the demigods from the Greek pantheons, you know, a, a union of a god and a human. Their stories are the downfall of the gods themselves. How the gods were fallible; that they had these demigods, and these demigods had to go through trials, and those trials line up canonically as a, as a story to warn against the non-virtuous side of the gods. Those are all stories that we should worry about ourselves. That's why, that's how these things work. It's, you know, so this one God structure, I'm okay with whatever you want to believe in, whatever, you know, 
faith or belief structure, religion you want to go with, that's up to you. You need to live inside of that, though. You need to live that action. And that's where true tranquility comes from. So tranquility of mind is free from disturbance or turmoil. And that may come in the form of prayer. It may come in the form of meditation. It may come in the form of self-reflection. It may come in the form of going to a therapist. It may come into the form of taking medication for anxiety or depression, those types of things. That's getting your mind right. To be tranquil, though, to be a, a person in tranquility has nothing to do with those specific actions. Those are just actions that add to it. Hopefully, I'm, I'm starting to make a little sense here. It's free from agitation of mind or spirit. This is, this is what these cards are telling me. These cards are telling me if your actions don't line up, if the way you live your life does not line up to the way you believe in things, the way you understand things, to what your depression really is, then you're just a false god. You're a false lie. You're you're a you're just another warning on the warnings of warnings of warnings. You're another statement on the label. So we must try to put together what our depression is. It's the first step. Remember, I was talking uh, last episode, and I, and I was talking about purpose. You know. Our purpose, our first purpose must be to make our depression our own. From that point, I'm now at this new stepping point of, okay, if we've, if we've come to make our purpose, our first, first thing, make our depression our own. And thus to look at depression, how we can use it, what our self-awareness is, what the three health bodies mean to us, what awareness, attention to intention means to us. What are your intentions towards yourself? What are your intentions for yourself? Do they line up? That key piece right there makes up tranquility. If your intentions for yourself and your intentions towards yourselves are two different things, you can't be tranquil. You can't have peace of mind. You can't have inner peace, if you want to call it that. You know, you can't sit and meditate and have any hope of it doing anything for you when it comes to mental peace. You know, yeah, there's always the breathing structure and the health body those types of things, but it's not going to line up all three. Tranquility is a balance of all three. What do we believe as a spiritual idea? What is our spiritual beliefs? What are the answers to our why questions? Where do they come from? How do they apply themselves to our depression, our self-awareness? And then what are we doing to our body or what are we allowing our body to do in regards to that, do all three of those things line up? Do our physical actions agree to our mental states? And do our mental states agree to our spiritual beliefs? That's why I've started to dive into spirituality so much is because we need to come up with an understanding personally of where our tranquility can come from. In the ancient times, tranquility might have been taking a drug of ecstasy very small dosage, you know, a mushroom. If you were in the pagan communities, you might take a quote unquote magic mushroom, a psilocybin or something along those lines to have a small trip experience to get closer to the gods. But we're finding out now through research that these psycho psychedelics are actually huge in opening up the mind. And there's even communities that do things like microdosing psilocybin or, or psychedelics to help in that factor. There's people who microdose, and I'm not saying to do any of this as a medical advice. There's people who go and do ayahuasca experiences, something I would definitely love to try. There's people who do microdosing of, um, not LSD, 
um, DMT, ditryptamine. Um, no, not ditryptamine. I forget what the name, but DMT, the spirit molecule, if you whatever they want to call it. But there, there's this idea of microdosing and, how, and safe levels of that. There are a lot of research papers being written right now and have been written over the last five years about the effects of psilocybin in small doses with therapy sessions to help people who are struggling from PTSD and how effective it can be. It's amazing what they can do with this. They started with LSD and that's a little harsh and that's kind of crazy. Not, and that's like, it's not crazy, but like that was a little harsh for some people. And now they're doing it with, and they well, they did have amazing results with just small doses of LSD working with PTSD. And now they're doing it with something a little bit more modulated, a little bit more moderated with psilocybin. And it's having wonderful, fantastic, you know, results. This is ancient medicine, people. This is what we were doing years and years ago. Why we've outlawed these things is because of human ignorance and specifically willful ignorance. We couldn't control the populace from being aware of itself, so we outlawed it. That's what the higher-ups decided. And yeah, I know I, I jump on this soapbox a lot, and I stand on the soapbox a lot, and I, I talk down on this stuff, but that's really where this human control structure comes from, is allowing other people to have an effect on our tranquility, our peace of mind, our, to be free from agitation of mind or spirit. That means to live your own truth, to live your own life, to have your own freedom. But also at the same time, remember Odin gave up one eye to get universal wisdom, to understand this give and take. If we want freedom, if we want tranquility and peace of mind, if we want to have control over ourselves, we must be responsible for it. And we have to prove that we can be. So just, yes, I would love to see a world where you know, people could have ayahuasca experiences if they wanted in a safe, controlled environment where they had all of the medical availability of a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counselor, or, you know, a medical staff, nurse, you know, practitioners on staff to help with any bad trip related situations, to have someone unpack these things with them. Same for psilocybin, to have a safe place to go do that. When we talk about safe spaces, we really should be talking about places that an individual can go to open themselves to these experiences with full medical attention available at that time. Not just a place where someone can lock themselves in a room and do whatever the fuck they want, including just trying to escape for a little while. You can do that at home in your bedroom. That's what a safe space is known as. The real question about safe spaces should be, why don't you feel safe here? Why question? Remember how big why questions are. There's something spiritually unbalanced in that idea that they don't know how to defend themselves, the seven of wands, from that outside influence, and they're so easily coerced or manipulated. That's a huge fucking problem in today's society. We've allowed the younger generations and even the older generations to somehow just be so coercible, so corruptible, so just un just so wavering in their ability to defend their belief structures that now we have to focus back on that. We have to get into the conversation of the Hierophant of your actions must line up with your belief structures. And if you don't know what they are yet, that's fine. That's okay. And yeah, it's fucking scary and you don't know what to do with it. Well, you got to be responsible for it. You got to unpack it. You got to look at it. What would your Bible be? What would your canonical story be? If you don't have that written yet, it's totally fine. You really shouldn't publish that shit till you die anyway. So like 
you know, this is the idea of manifestos. You know, we, we throw those, that word around and it usually has to come with a terrorist, you know, situation because terrorists have manifestos. So do groups and organizations. It's just not called a manifesto. The contextual idea of the word we use is, is what's really important. That's why I've, I've spent a lot of time breaking down these episodes into single words, using Merriam-Webster's dictionary to, you know, pick out some synonyms, but using the definitions so we can look at the importance of our vocabulary, the vernacular, the words we're using. That's why, you know, the Knight of Swords here is a super representation. The Knight of Swords is a, is a silver-tongued individual. It's very easily a, a very eloquent speaker who can manipulate people into their belief structures. We have to be careful about those things. Not only do we have to be careful about listening to the silver tongue individuals, we have to be careful about being a silver tongue individual. I am a silver tongue individual. It's very easily for it's very easy for me to use eloquent word structures and I'm very good with my speech patterns. You should see me on stage giving a speech to, you know, multiple individuals in a group setting. I feel out the crowd. I listen to the crowd. I watch the crowd and I switch my word verbiage and my wordage and all these things. I'm very good at manipulating people that way. I have to be responsible in not doing that. That's why I don't run a cult because I could, I absolutely could get a bunch of people to believe a bunch of bullshit and give me a lot of money for no reason. Totally could do that. It's way up my, it's right in my wheelhouse of doing things. That's not right action. It's not what I believe in as a person. I don't believe to be that person or believe that, you know, structure of things. I want people to be, have their own freedom to think for themselves. That's why I do this podcast. Not only it's a balance of the catharticism for who I am and who I, you know, the things I want to believe in experiencing those and, and delving into them deeper while also providing the information to others to look deeper into themselves has to be balanced there. I believe in universal balance. I believe in those actions. And if I have coerced anyone into the things I believe in, I apologize. I really do. It's not my, it's not my want. And if I do know that I slip in my way of talking and I get very, you know, silvery tongued or silky speeched, you know, that's why we have those canonical writings and anecdotal stories throughout history to warn against people like me in some cases. But also at the same time, the, the devil's advocate story of, yeah, I do like to get down and use those types of speech to make people open their mind. There is right action of wrong method. It's a slippery slope, but it's possible. This is the representation specifically in the tarot deck of the devil. It's also the representation in the pagan stories, in the old stories that created modern religions. Our belief structures as humans have not really changed all that much. Yes, we've created new religions, we've created new civilizations, new organizations, new ways of doing things, new invention, new methodologies. We have this thing known as imagination. Please go back and listen to episode 40, another very, very important episode. But all of that being said, humans haven't changed being human. What we've done is given into our more base animalistic ideas. This is a marketing world full of sex, drugs, and alcohol. This is a world of making money and riches the most important thing. This is all of these things that we would warn about that were downfalls of society. Go back and look at the Roman Empire and how it collapsed on side of itself and how that same collapse is the same collapse of 
pretty much all of the other dynasties in the human history world, the you know Egyptian dynasties, the they, they all come to an end at some point. That's the cyclical nature of humanity and cyclical nature of civilization. But our fundamental ideas have they changed all that much? Are the belief structures of the pagans that much different of the belief structures of the Christians of the, you know, in, inside of that group, the Roman Catholics and are they any different than the Judaic communities, the Hebrew communities? Are they any different than the, the Muslim communities, Buddhist communities? Don't they all speak of right action, right belief? Don't they all speak of the same things, family and, and, and community and and being good to one another in some regard or at least just not being shitty to each other don't they all speak about those things and haven't they all broken those rules over the years and allowed them to just oh you know sometimes you can bend the rules that's bullshit we know it's bullshit just nobody speaks out about it because these are too powerful of structures these are too monumental but human history hasn't changed if we go back all the way to the ancient civilization of human history, and we don't really truly know what that is. We have no idea what our real history is. We have no idea really where we came from, who made us. It's all a big guess, and the answer is there's no answer right now, and that's beautiful in its own right. If we really looked hard, if we go back all, if we want to say cave people were our ancestors, right, or Cro-Magnum Man, or, you know, if we want to go back all the way, you know, what do you got? You got a cave, you got a fire because we need technology to live. We need fire to live unless we're on, you know, some small 10 degree area around the equator. You got a cave. So you got a domicile, right? We all, we all just want a little, a little home to ourselves, a little peaceful place to protect us. And, you know, we can, we can sleep comfortably for the night, right? Okay. That's a pretty solid idea. The domi from the Roman empire, the domicile. And all right, let's just start on that one because I'm going to, you know how I am. I'm going to get on some, you know, rant and here comes the rant for warning. If we just start with that idea, just the domicile, the domi, the home. If we look throughout human history, it's a very important conceptual idea. The principal idea is that we need shelter. That's the principal idea of human history, that humans require shelter and we require technology. We require fire, we require a water source, and we, we require a, a shelter from the, the elements. So shelter is the principal idea. The conceptual nature of it, though, is this, this idea of individual home, but also group community home as well. So we might have shared the cave as a community, but then we all went and found our own caves. And from there, we started to build our own shelters, but we also had a communal shelter. So there's this, this separatization of the home and the group home or group setting. And they're conjoined in some ways. But if we look at the world, the pagan world, the world above Hadrian's wall, the, the world in, you know, Roman society, the idea of slavery, right? 
is to remove that from someone. Not only just remove all of their rights and, you know, this is their humanity. And it, no, it's a terrible fucking horrible thing. Slavery should not exist. And I, but I want I want to look at, you know, I don't shy away from the tough so- subjects here. If we look at the truest thing you could make slavery into is to take someone's home away from them and to say they have no home. You have no place of rest or respite. And not only that, to take away both the, the, the singular setting of domi, the domicile, and also the communal setting of domicile, to take away access to the baths in the Roman Empire, to take away the representation of where someone sleeps in the you know North Pantheon, in the Eastern um, slave trade, where you would make someone sleep with the animals. You would treat them lesser than a human. The best psychological way to do that to someone is to do that, is to take away what is considered the human home and the human communal site and put them in the animal home, the animal communal site. That's one of the best ways to do that to someone. So just that idea right there, so intrinsically human, why why isn't, why, a why question, that we believe it's okay to say that a religious belief structure has the right to destroy that idea? Why is it even a religious argument? It should not be. This was supposed to be in the American culture, in the United States of America, the representation of separation from church and state. We failed ultimately at that goal. That, that goal was failed. And sure, the majority of the populace might be Christian, although I think that's coming down quite a bit in the America. What we need to look at in a better light is all of the connections between our different belief structures and religion, one of those things has always been the freedom and safety of the domi, of the domicile. And the Roman Empire was known as the domi. In the uh, other places, it was a house, a home, your own personal cave. But we protected that idea. And we had protected that idea till very recently. It was always a crime to enter someone else's home without being invited in. And this goes all the way back to the mythical understanding of it. There are myths and legends about this. Anytime, you know, in modern society, when we look at, you have to invite a vampire into your own home or they're not allowed to come in. That is a representation of the idea that the home itself is a sacred place. Because that's what the truest versions of most religions state, is that the truest place of worship is in one's own home. That's a protected state. That if if even, so uh, we'll use the Greek uh, representation here because I think it's a really good one. To defile something was to destroy the, the worship site. You could defile something. In most cases... Even a thief would not defile the shrine inside of a person's home. So if someone was down on their luck and they decided the thievery was the right option for them and they would go into the farmer's home to steal whatever food they might have and they would ransack the place, 
they would not defile the shrine or the little altar to the God of harvest. That was not okay to do. That is a symbolization, a personal representation to community to understand these places are sacred worship sites. Your home is your sacred site. It's your worship to yourself. And I might get into that another point because part of the soapbox I'm standing on here is to look at this. If you want tranquility, I beg of you to start in your home. What does it look like? Why do you have things arranged the way they are? Are you getting proper sleep? Are you able to? Do you have peace and quiet when you need to? Do you feel safe there? All religions taught this. Pagans, monotheistic, polytheistic, you know, Judaism with the whole, the whole thing about the Holy Spirit, the whole story of the Holy Spirit. I know I'm trying to connect some very intertwined and very spidery and, and, and not safe things, but somebody's got to at this point. I don't think it really should be me. I'm not qualified to do it, but hopefully somebody will hear this and start to do it on a grander scale. When we talk about the, the plagues, you know, if we talk about the, the story of Noah, um, and we talk about the the story of the the pharaohs, um, and how the plagues come into the thing. One of the specific ideas in the plagues was that if an individual were to go and take goat's blood and draw a specific symbol on the, um, I forget what the exact word is it, but it's essentially the two uh, hues that make up a. A door frame. There was this, uh, this specific pillar set that makes up the door frame. If they would draw it on the top of the specific symbol on the door or on the on the door frame itself, the Holy Spirit would not enter their home and kill the firstborn child because that was one of the plagues. Right? It's one of the, that's part of the plague story. This is a representation of the holiness, the sacredness of the home. That even the Holy Spirit couldn't go into it, could not enter that space unless it was invited in. In the Eastern communities, we have, um, it's not the precipice. I always want to call it the precipice, but it's not the precipice. Uh, I, I'm not going to remember the word for this. I apologize. But essentially, if you look at how um, ancient Eastern homes are built, there's a, a lip you have to step over. So typically the door frame at the bottom, there's a log or a, a pillar or a beam that you need to step over. And then from there you would step into a zone in which there's a raised floor. Uh, it's still in most traditional and even in most um, modern um, buildings in Japan and China, specifically in Japan, they have what's known as the tatami mat system, but they have a section when you first step in the door, there's a lower area and then there's a raised floor and you leave your shoes there. You, know, you don't track, you don't bring those, the shoe thing is you leave the shoes there. You put on a separate pair of shoes for the home. Um, but before that, there was this, this beam that you would have to step over. And that was a symbolization of keeping out the yonkai or keeping out of the darker evil spirits or keeping out things that were not willed to be there. You must step over this precipice. I think it might actually be called a precipice. I might just be confusing myself. But to step over this precipice and leave, these things were portals. Doorways were portals. They were very sacred ideas. 
So inside of that, we have, you know, this understanding that we've kind of always had, it's kind of always been there. And to think that that changes in any way is, I don't know, I would say a misrepresentation. It's a, a, a non-tranquil idea. We're not living in inside of our own truth there. We're allowing other, other, I don't know, other outside influences to make up what we believe or how we act. So that's the last part that I'll probably go on another rant about because I was going to go into a bigger rant about how, you know, there's a domicile, but that was good enough to, to give an explanation of how we have all these belief structures we've had since ancient societies. And we've, we've forgotten them. We've created these separate separatizations, but all these belief structures share them in common. There's all of these commonalities between the world's opinions on what to believe and how to, you know, what right action looks like. That I don't quite under I do understand, but I don't know quite know why we don't agree to disagree. It's like the hardest thing for some of us to, and I mean some of us by I mean the higher ups and the people who are apparently in control of this world, to agree to disagree. Why is that so scary? Why I'm asking a huge why question here. It's scary because they don't have tranquility. They don't have peace of mind. They don't have right action. They don't have a world in which they get to live with who they are in the inside is who they get to be on the outside. That's what I'm really getting into here. I'm really honing in on this idea. If you want true spirituality, start to make what it looks like on the inside, what it looks like on the outside. And there are some individuals there that scares the shit out of them because they know it's an ugly, terrible person. And if they showed that outwardly, oh, Oh, they would be ostracized so quickly. So no, they don't, they don't get to be who they want to be because they have to be a lying, deceitful person. And maybe that is their true nature. Maybe there are some people out there that really are just horrible fucking human beings on the inside. And they, they show it outwardly by lying and deceitfully doing things, saying one thing and acting differently. Maybe that's who they truly are, but we usually weed those people out pretty quickly. And I don't want to believe not that, not that I don't want to believe. I, I kind of believe that the level of the amount of people that we allow to be that way is increasing, which is why we see such turmoil in society. Because society ebbs and flows just like we ebb and flow. If we keep teaching people that effort doesn't matter, the only thing that matters is achievements and the fucking ability to buy $60 steaks and drive Bentleys and, you know, fly on personal jets and be millionaires. If that's, if that's what matters, then that's the world we're going to get. We're going to get a bunch of fucked up people who don't believe effort means anything and they're not going to put effort into anything. So we're going to get housing that collapses. We're going to get banking systems that don't work. We're going to get governments that fail their populaces. We're going to get the Roman empire all over again. Fucking pick up a history book leaders of the world and read this shit. Cause if I can figure it out, so can you. And so can my listeners. And so can kids in high school. So instead, maybe, just maybe, we should take an inward look. We should stop acting like the Hierophant has something to do with church 
and only church and realize that it has to do with church and state. It can be dual fold. We can have duality here because duality is Trinity and almost every religion has spoken about Trinity. So all of this together, what does it mean for you? What's your Bible look like? What's your canonical story? What's your understanding of your inside and how it gets expressed outwardly? This is partly the story of the trickster gods. It's partly the story of the noble, courageous Hercules and all of these other different individuals. It's even the story of like modern heroes. We've turned celebrities into gods. We worship the things they do. We have these things known as social influencers, and they have somehow taken on a better representation of who humanity should be, although they can be the ugliest version of it. They are the biggest liars, the biggest deceitful people. They are the snake oil salesmen of ancient past. It's just they've gotten a bigger platform now. This is the idea of career politicians. No society has ever successfully been run by career politicians. Never, not once in human history. In fact, every time that happens, society collapses over and over again, time and time again. We're just not, we're not having these conversations anymore at a level in which people can either understand them or people can identify with them. This is why I say it's nearly impossible to teach someone tranquility. All I can do is make you aware of the idea that it's possible to both have your external you represent your internal you, but also to live in a world where that is a possibility. Because I think that's been taken off the table in most cases. And I think a lot of people suffer from that coercion that the idea that you can be a tranquil person has to do with meditation and kombucha and, uh, and listening to that influencer tell you to do like, you know, eat your green, you know, drink your green shake and do your pushups today. All of those things are great things. And I'm not saying these people are terrible human beings. If they're willfully ignorantly doing it, then they are, then they're evil. But that has nothing to do with tranquil nature. They don't get to decide that for you. How many times do I have to scream this? You know, this is my Gary Vaynerchuk moment. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk has given some amazing speeches. And one of the things he always talks about is being in perpetuity. He says the same shit every time over and over again. He just tries to do it in different methods to get people to understand what he's talking about. I keep screaming that you can't let other people make up these decisions for you. Yet I keep watching other people do it. So I'll, keep, I'll, I'll just keep getting on. This is my tranquility. This is me, my inner voice into my external monologue is to continue to tell you over and over and over and over again, you have to decide these things for yourself. That's why you have to make your purpose has to be your depression is, your, is yours. No one else's. You can even be like, fuck you, Phil. I don't believe in anything you say you're useless and never listen to me ever again. And I'll be so happy that happened because it means you're hopefully acting in your own best interest for your own regard. And you've decided to be your own person and to be your own depression and use your own depression and make up your own mind by looking at all the facts and not believing anyone else ever. 
to only be slightly influenced so that you can better open your mind to things. It is nearly impossible to convince me of something. Nearly impossible. It takes a lot. If it's just you telling me. Now, if it's you telling me about you, I'm probably going to try to believe you. Because you're your own expert on you, hopefully. At least I'd like to think people are, or at least try to be. But, you know, if you want me to believe a new study or, you know, you start quoting things, even if you start quoting Marcus Aurelius, I'm going to be like, hmm... I think I have my own personal understanding of that, that I live in my own tranquility of my own way and methods might be different. I'm totally on board for listening to your differentiating opinion. That's really important to do. But, and I might not try to apply my truth on top of yours. If that's the case, if you have a very good understanding of it, then I'm just going to add to mine. I'm not going to just change all my methods though. That's called cults. That's why I could run one, because I understand how that works. Just choosing not to. To be free from agitation of mind or spirit, to actually be tranquil, to have tranquility. Again, has nothing to do with kombucha and meditation and doing yoga. These are all methods of attaining. And we have to make the separation, separation between enlightenment, which has to do everything with death or to be enlightened of a burden. And these other words that we call mysticism or mystic of this, oh, tranquility to have harmony of peace of mind to blah, 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 blah. No, it's not that complicated. And if someone is making it that complicated, they're trying to sell you on some bullshit. And that, that world's over. The world has to be over because that world is a propagation of the world of monarchies, of ruling parties. And we can't allow that to happen. You must be responsible for yourself. That's one of the first steps into having a tranquil mind to, or, and then to later have tranquility, to be responsible for yourself. Your actions are your responsibility. And others are going to judge you upon them. And you ultimately have to decide was it the right action? And it's troubling and it should be. And no, you're never going to make the right decision every time. You'll never learn anything if you do that. I've said some things on this podcast and I'm like, oof, should I really have said that? And ultimately, I've always come back to, you know what? Yeah, I'm fine with it. Because I know that if someone is going to judge me upon that, I'm very happy to debate them about what I said to make sure one, they're not taking me out of context because remember take context out of things to make sure they're not misstruing what I said to make sure they're not just taking a snippet of what I said and adding it to something else. And then to understand where they're coming from. I don't ever feel personally attacked if someone disagrees with me. That would mean that I've given up what I believe in that I allowed them and their opinion to somehow change mine right off the bat because they disagreed for the longest time. I was not capable of this for the longest time. I just wanted other people to like me because it was beneficial. That was part of my, my course of my corruptible methods. If I could get someone to like me, I could get, I could get a little bit of influence and an intrigue and those types of things. That led to me not being who I was, me being a fake person. I used to lie all of the time. Yeah, they were little white lies and yeah, but that doesn't matter. They were lies. And I used to lie all of the time. 
because it's what I believed I needed to do to get ahead. And did it get me ahead? Yeah. Did I suffer a lot from it? Yeah, definitely. Give and take. What are you willing to put in to get out? Because if it's all lies, you're going to get some bad shit out of that. You might get ahead, but it's going to come at a cost. There's cost to everything. This is balance. This is why I believe in balance. Right action leads to peaceful balance, leads to harmony, both internally and externally. In the martial arts, that's what we teach. That no effort in gets nothing out. But also there must be a balance between the internal and the external. You have to have these methodologies of teaching. And this is why it's so hard to teach what tranquility is because it is part of depression. It's part of uniquely who someone is. Are they going to show themselves for what they are on the inside? And maybe their inside is turmoil and they don't understand. So are they going to show that externally? Oh, that's a scary, scary thought to be so mixed up on the inside, to be so in turmoil, so, so worked up, so much anxiety, so much unsurety to be so in pain, to be so, so broken and not to be able to show that externally because society is going to judge you on it. Your friends are going to judge you on it. Your trainer at the gym is going to judge you on it. Your, I'm not saying these things are true. Typically, these people are very caring, and, and, and you can show that to them. That's why I'm mentioning them op- openly. But even like, you know, the counselor or, or if it's, you know, for, oh, forbid that it be, God's forbid that it be at school age, at, you know, in high school, because this is the vulnerability there. It's just too much to deal with. We've all been through that, right? Or maybe we're going through it now or about to. Um, not that I... I typically put an explicit warning on these episodes. I don't think anyone under the age of 18 really listens to them all that much or maybe show it. I don't know. Um, but that internal struggle of to accept that I, you're broken, to accept that you're in turmoil, to accept that you have no tranquility, and then to outwardly show that, to say, hey, man, I'm fucked up. Like, I've been through some bad shit. I don't want sympathy or pity. Stop giving me that shit. Stop giving me sympathy or pity. Stop specifically giving me and then also giving others. Stop, stop, stop. Stop playing the game of whose life is worse. Who had it worse? Who got dealt the wrong set of cards? That's all chance. If you're playing the chance game with chance facts, you're going to get chance results. Roll the die. And I'm all about rolling a D20 to see what happens. Roll for initiative. All right. But when it comes to true healing and true understanding, true tranquility, we have to show what's on the inside outside. And if we're not comfortable with that fact just yet, we need to represent that. I now speak openly about my suicidal nature, my broken home, my sexual abuse, my, you know, the things that I went through. I speak openly about them, not for your praise, not for your pity, because people who are constantly seeking praise and pity don't know anything about themselves. And you definitely should stay away from those people because they are trying to corrupt you in some way or coerce you into something. No, I talk about them openly because I want people to know that they can connect with someone else. And that their depression is uniquely who they are. And we do not need to understand each other's depression. In fact, we need to do the opposite and understand that we can't. It's impossible. Because you are you and I am me. 
And from that standpoint, we can start to be who we are and not be what other people expect us to be, not would be what other people want us to be. Because we've tried that. We've tried that in ancient societies. We've tried that in today's society. And it doesn't work. When are we going to wake up to this fact that these things don't work this way? We can be different. We can believe in different things and we can coexist together in doing so. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful, eloquent, poetic ways of experiencing balance. That to, for something to be balanced, it must be unbalanced. Some of the most beautiful things in the world are broken. Some of the most beautiful things in the world were mistakes. My father's father, my grandfather... Uh, wonderful man. Absolutely wonderful man. He was a master HVAC technician. Um, very devout religious individual, but also very cantankerous. Um, I think I've spoken about him before on the podcast, but he taught me one of the most important, valuable life lessons that I never understood until very recently. And I mean, recently within the last two or three years and he passed away uh, before that. Um, he had passions that weren't passionate. He was very good with his hands. He was a very technical individual he served in World War II, and he was there when they dropped the bomb on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He was on a medical frigate um, off the coast. Uh, so when they dropped the bombs, he was one of the first boats to receive survivors um, to provide medical aid. And that deeply scarred him as a human being deeply scarred him. I remember when Saving Private Ryan came out, I didn't quite understand as a kid because we didn't talk about these things. And I didn't even know. Like For the longest time, I thought he was just like a janitor. Like I, I had a very mixed up representation of who... I knew who he was as a grandfather, but not really who he was as a person and what he had done in his life until later. I didn't get to understand these things till later. Um, which was a miscommunication between me and my family. But he had seen some shit. This dude had seen some things, man. Not only had he seen war, he had seen the unfathomable experience of a nuclear bomb laying waste to an entire city, two entire cities. And the outcome of people who actually survived that, this is horrific. I mean, I can't even fathom her. I get troubled by watching visceration in movies because I understand the human system. I still can't fathom what it would be like to be on a medical frigate off the coast of Japan to receive survivors from a nuclear blast. I, I to this day, cannot fathom that experience. That is part of my intrinsic idea of depression being uniquely who you are, there is no way I could connect with him on this in any way. Saving Private Ryan was so 
visceral for him. He couldn't watch it for years. And I don't know if he ever actually did. He used to just love to watch old John Wayne movies on Turner classic movies and fall asleep in his chair. He also had COPD from working with asbestos for years in the HVAC, you know, world and was on oxygen all the time, but he was very good with his hands. He was a very technical individual. He was in service to his community, was always in service to the church. And he went to my grandparents, specifically my grandmother was very religious. I'm not sure how religious my grandfather was. Uh, he was very cantankerous in that idea. He kind of gave me a little bit of that, but he was a, a smaller individual was in his, in his older years. Um, not frail, but not exactly stout or anything like that. He was a shorter, smaller individual, but he would threaten to sit on us and we would fear this deep inside of ourselves and he had these passions that weren't passionate he taught me how to sand wood and stain wood he taught me how to garden he taught me how to do a puzzle he was the first person to ever show me how to do a puzzle like like actual logical like rational ways like all right we're gonna do the border we're gonna try to start at the corners we're gonna find color like he really taught me like methods of doing things he was the first person and i didn't know this at the time that showed me the conceptual and even principal nature of things and one of the greatest principles he ever taught me was he liked to quilt he he loved to sew and quilt picture this now okay a battle-hardened World War II Navy individual who had seen some of the most horrific things human beings are capable of doing. A master HVAC technician who could hold his own with the best, had, you know, years of experience in working on all sorts of technical things, including engines and, and all these things, who was in service to his community on a regular basis, just like the sew and do puzzles and watch historical Western movies or watch, you know, Turner classic Western movies and fall asleep in his chair and talk about the community. He loved talking about the community. That was like my thing to do with him is when him and I were in the room together, no one else to talk to him about like what it was growing. He grew up with like seven or nine, you know, siblings in Philadelphia, you know, not very well off. And like how society and also the world around us had changed from now to then, or from from then to now. And he used to just, he's, he liked to sew and do quilting. And I, I know I've dragged this on a little bit too long. So the principal thing he taught me was every time I went over, every time, pop up, what have you been working on? You know? Because he wasn't one to bolst, but he was a little bit cantankerous. So he'd like to show some things off now and then. He used to make me little pewter soldiers. He's just, a, just an amazing man. Um, he would go into his little sewing room and he'd grab what he was working on or something he just finished. Every single time, every single time he'd show something, he'd point out the mistake he made. Every time. He always pointed out the mistake. And every time you looked at one of these things, 
I didn't understand the beauty of it at the time, but now the memory of it, he'd point out these mistakes that like no one would choose to say was a mistake. And the fact that he did it every single time showed me the beauty in that. That the mistake is what made these things important. The mistake is what made these things beautiful. And if I had to make a giant leap, it's a little tough for me to do right now, but if I had to make a giant leap in how this man saw the world, he had seen one of the most horrific actions of humanity that humanity's ever committed. He lived through it. He watched it happen in real time. And yet he chose to live in peace and beauty and to see the proper nature of things, to understand, to continue to be in service of the, to the community, to, to help others. He was constantly over at other people's houses doing, you know, he was, he was the, the fix it guy. You know, he's who you call if you didn't know who to call or how to fix something or couldn't afford to do it. He would be happy to sit down and have lunch with you and just put a banister up or hang a picture. He was the balance to the horrid things he had seen, but he was absolutely broken. And that was the representation I think he was showing every time he, he said, well, here's what I'm working on, but you know, I have this mistake right here. He never fixed it every time. He never fixed it. In fact, to this day now, I think he put them in on purpose, not to show off his work, not to, you know, belittle himself in not being a, to point out the fact that he was outside what he was inside. He wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't a perfect person. But he put in his effort. He tried. He was tranquil in that thing. His tranquility knew no bounds. This man could fall asleep whenever he wanted to. <laughs> He'd just take a nap. He was just a peaceful person. And I'm not saying he was happy. I don't know if he was happy. He was too young to know those things. And there was a lot of turmoil in my family. I, you know, again, broken home. But if I had to pick on an epitome of my own story, my own canonical writing, what looked, what I would describe to be tranquil was this man. He would be in my Bible as someone who found a way to be both inwardly and outwardly the same. And not, not just the same, to have harmony between what he was outside and what he was inside, to, to have those things work in conjunction together, even if it was just through what he did with his hands, always pointing out his mistake, never hiding it, always pointing it out, always showing it off almost. It was almost like he was proud of those moments. That's what made him cantankerous in some ways, 
even though I didn't agree to that back then, but he was. So that's where somehow these cards took me. Um, again, the Ace of Swords. Our truth, our honesties, our, our belief structures, are, you know, who, what we are, who we are. The Knight of Swords, not being blind to imposing that on someone else, to not be blind that we're just trying to force that on someone else, to, to look inward and to be understanding of it. The Seven of Wands, to defend our position, but also be open, you know, don't be, don't be quick to fight over it. Don't be, you know, yes, sometimes offense is the best defense, but don't pick the fight. An offensive mover, an offensive move that is defensive is still defensive. An offensive move, a move for the sake of being offensive is fuckery. Um, the four of wands to celebrate those ideas, but not, not too early. To celebrate one celebration is necessary and to celebrate openly, to, to be outwardly what we are in, inwardly and the Hierophant to, to have that understanding of right action, of, of showing what's inside outwardly and to act accordingly. What does your Bible look like? What does your canonical writing look like? What does the story of you look like to someone a thousand years from now? What is your Marcus Aurelius meditations? What is your Bhagavad Gita story? What is, what is that conversation look like? What would you tell the prince in a statement of making them understand those lesser and those above them as well? How would you educate the person that way? That's tranquility. That is a free being free from agitation of mind or spirit to openly be able to share these things without recourse or function to be able to go to bed at night and feel calm and just be like, yeah, that was the right answer. Good. And if not to be able to move through that at a good sustainable pace and be like, mm, okay, I'm a little unsure of that. How could I do that differently next time? Maybe. And then to accept that, yes, we make mistakes. And we can show them off. It's okay. So that's what I have for you about tranquility. I hope it helps. I hope in some way you'll be able to find your own. It's not easy. I'm still struggling with mine some days. Some days are better than others. That's how it goes. But that's part of the whole methodology, right? That's part of, uh, that's part of weaving the quilt of our lives going to be mistakes along the way. And, and sometimes we should celebrate those instead of celebrating some of the other things we do. The effort is what matters. Calls to action as usual. Head over to the podcast uh, website, timhindrances.com. Head over to the archive. Click some links there to go off to some things and buy some things or look at some things. Um, head over to purebulk.com. And get yourself some supplements using code Taming Hindrances for ten percent off. I get some commission on that. Um, they have an amazing lineup of all sorts of stuff. One is Cliff High's Pure Sleep. If you're having trouble getting sleep, um, I do highly recommend that product. Um, it's a non-melatonin product, although I'm not one of the people that say don't take melatonin. But you can check out my review of that product. That's Cliff, Cliff High's Pure Sleep Gen Two review on my YouTube channel, which is just Taming Hindrances. YouTube.com/slash Taming Hindrances. Uh, what else? Podcast reviews. I could totally use some of those. Um, if this thing's ever going to get any bigger or blow up, I need recommendations. And one of the ways to recommend to other people is to do a review or post on your social media sites. Um, or just honestly let a friend know. Like, if you know someone who would benefit from just hearing me, 
I know I can put people to sleep. So if somebody needs to take a nap and you need my voice to help them with that, uh, go right ahead and uh, recommend the podcast, if you will. Um, what else? That's about it. I'll leave it at that. Happy tranquility. And a happy better understanding of what tranquility actually is. Uh, I will leave it up to the cards for next time to see what we talk about next time. But I think we're on kind of a, a same sort of understanding of like what all this crazy stuff out there is. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.